Well, hello, everybody. It's great to see you. Good to welcome all of you today. And uh, thanks for checking this out, being a part of this, whether live here in the room or watching online or maybe on our Moon campus or in the classic venue, wherever you're checking it out. We're glad that you are here, and it is good to welcome all of you. Very much looking forward to this new series that we have in front of us. As we get into it, I'm kind of thinking about this idea of revelation and revealing things, and that's kind of a big deal. People today still and like to make a big deal out of revealing things. How many of you have ever been to a gender reveal party or event, right? There's a lot of you who have been there. A gender reveal party, in case you've never been to one, is basically a bunch of excited women running around screaming and guys going, is there anything to eat? That's pretty much what it is, right? And so in, we like to reveal things and, and all of that, but uh, I think they're kind of getting a little bit out of hand. And you've perhaps seen some of the news stories. I saw one news story about a gender reveal party. It was a guy, he had a target set up and he had his rifle and he shot at the target and it exploded and there's all kinds of blue smoke that goes flying everywhere. But so did the fire and it caught the grass on fire and it actually ended up burning 46,000 acres as a result. He ended up getting fined $8 million. But it's a boy. <laughs> You're not going to have money to send to school. But, gender, I think that they should be just a little simpler. Like uh, this one I saw. And this one cracks me up. Take a look. Okay, ready on the count of three. Open your eyes. One, two, three. I just love that. I'm not sure that she quite got it, but if you're one who likes to see things revealed, then you're here at a great time because today we are launching into this study through the book, the letter of Revelation in the New Testament, and that's exactly what it is. It's a revelation. It's a revealing of God's purposes and of his plan. And we're going to be jumping in and we're going to dig deep in this book as we make our way along. For the next several weeks, basically, we're going to be having a reveal party here at church week by week. And I hope you'll be with us every week along the way. Now, I'm very excited about what's ahead on this, and I know many of you are also, because many of you have said to me, I can't wait until we get into this book. But not everybody's there. Some guy came up to me a couple of weeks ago and he said, you couldn't pay me enough money to preach through the book of Revelation. But good luck. <laughs> That's what he told me. Now, if you're inclined to do anything for me, don't wish me good luck. Pray. Pray that I might have insight. Pray that I might have wisdom as we take and dig into these things and that I might communicate it effectively to all of us as we make our way along. Now, more than any other book in the Bible, Revelation is one that has probably more opinions on the part of people who are actually going to be sitting and listening than any other book you can find in the Bible. I don't think there's any doubt about that. We come at this from a variety of different perspectives. One of these might describe you. Some people are like, I know it. I got it figured out. I know what it says. I've got my charts. I understand it, and I'm convinced in what, it's, what is in there. 
Other people are like, yeah, I'm pretty convinced too. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, I haven't really studied it. I was told a position, and I've heard about that, and, and I'm kind of convinced about that, but I, I, I couldn't point you to any verses to help me out along the way. Some people are just confused. It's like, I have no clue what that book is talking about, and so it's very demotivating to actually dig in and read anything in it. Some people are like, I'm just afraid. I'm just afraid. I read about beasts, and I read about judgments, and I don't know what that is, and when that is coming, and if that's going to affect me, and I'm just kind of afraid. So I just sort of avoid the book. One of those perspectives might describe you, might describe where you are. You might be somewhere, have something that would describe you that's different from all of those, but the fact of the matter still remains that we are coming at this book from a variety of different places, but I'm not worried about that. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of division that might happen as a result of that because I believe that we can move together in our way, in our study through this, even if we don't all have the same opinion and actually end up at a place where you might emerge from this with this being your new favorite book of the Bible. I'm convinced that there will be people who are absolutely in that position as we make our way along. Now, if that's going to happen, we're going to have to get our heads around some basic features that we find in this book. And this is where I want to get started today. I just want to talk as we get this launched about some revelation realities, introductory ideas and themes and talk. We're going to get through some verses we're also just going to kind of give an orientation a bit to this book as we get into it. Now, I hope you've got your, your scripture sermon journal. I hope you got that when you came in. If any of you are sitting here and you don't have that, you can go to the back of the room, whatever venue you're in, and you can find one there. You're going to want to have this in front of you. And I hope that you'll take and I hope that you'll fill that thing up with notes and uh, fill it up. And the first thing that I would like you to do, however, before you jot notes in there, is right at the top on that very first page at the top, would you please write your name and write your phone number up there at the top? Because there are going to be a bunch of these that are floating around every single week, and they're going to look identical to one another. And uh, I want to be sure that we can connect you back to you, to yours, just in case it gets left behind in case it gets left behind, so to speak. All right, the four of you who got that can explain it to everybody else later on. Now, we're going to have an outline in your Pathway Notes every week, and you can take that, and you can jot things in there if you want, but I just suggest that you might just transfer it all over into your journal as we go here. All right, so open up your journal, or maybe if you prefer in your Bible, I think that's awesome also, to Revelation chapter 1. And as we get started, can I just give you one of the pastor's pet peeves about this? Pretty much anybody who preaches this says, it's Revelation, people. It is not Revelations. There's one revelation that has come from God through Jesus to John, and there aren't many revelations. It is one revelation. So as you refer to that, as you talk, um, just use that nomenclature if you would. All right, let's jump into some introductory revelation realities. First of those is this, that revelation uses unusual means to unveil an unusual message. Unusual means to unveil an unusual message. We can see some of this right at the top of the book. Verse 1 says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The first unusual piece that we see here in this message is that it's an apocalypse. 
Apocalypse, bang, there you go, just right off the... In our language today, apocalypse basically means the end of the world. And we understand that's how we talk about it, but that's not exactly how it would have been here. The very first word in the book of Revelation in the Greek New Testament, which is what the New Testament was written in Greek, the very first word is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, you see it right here. That's what we translate as revelation. We think of, you can hear apocalypse comes from apocalypsis. We think end of the world. That's not exactly how it was understood at that time. At that time, it meant to unveil or to uncover something that previously had been hidden. And that's what this book is all about. We think of Revelation as being something that's very mysterious, that's very hidden, that's very hard to understand. Well, right at the very first word of the whole letter, it says the purpose of this letter is to unveil. It is to uncover. It is to help us to understand what is here. And I believe that we can do that. It was written for the people of the New Testament era and for us who have followed ever since that we might understand what is in here, what God is up to in the world. And how did he make it known? Verse 1 tells us that it's the revelation of Jesus that God gave to him and that he, through the angel, passed on to John, who then made it accessible, available to the people of God in writing this letter that describes the things that he was given to see. That's what's here. So it's an apocalypse, an unveiling. He goes on, it says it's also a prophecy. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. When we think of prophecy, we tend to think of something that's been predicted, that's going to be fulfilled down the road. Some point in the future, it's going to happen. And Revelation is that. It tells us about the future. It tells us about the fact that Jesus is going to return. It tells us about the fact that there is going to be this new heaven and this this new earth, these things that are future forward. So it does foretell what is coming, but prophecy isn't just, it doesn't, it's only, it's not only understood as a foretelling, it's also understood to be a forthtelling, or what that means is it describes things actually that are as well as things that will be, and in this particular case, it talks very much about the kingdom of God, the consummation of the kingdom of God, which is coming, but at the same time, it recognizes that God's kingdom is not just future, it's also in the moment when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he is he's announcing that Jesus is arriving, what he says there in the Gospel of Matthew is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So prophecy doesn't just say this is what's coming way down the road. Sometimes it's also making a declaration of what is, and we see that right here in this book. One more piece that John reveals as we get started here is that the revelation is a letter. Going on in verse 4, we read, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That just sounds like a letter, doesn't it? It says, here's the author, his name is John, and here are the recipients. They're the seven churches of Asia, and we're going to talk a lot more about those in the weeks that are to come. But for now, what we just need to understand, it's important to recognize that these are ordinary churches, churches that were established as Paul and others would go around and they'd preach the gospel and they'd see people come to faith and the church was, these are real churches. 
that have been started there throughout Asia Minor. Again, we'll talk more about that in the future. But they're ordinary people who are making up ordinary churches. These are not primarily theologians. They're not primarily highly educated people. In fact, for many of these people, they wouldn't even know how to read the Scriptures or even how to read. And so that the way that the Scriptures or this letter would have been provided for them. It's one letter that was written that was sent in a circular pattern to go through these churches. Again, we'll describe that more in weeks to come, but uh, it is brought into the congregation, into the gathering, and it is read for them. And they just hear, and they just listen. And the book says that blessed are those who do listen. And the expectation was that as they listen, as they hear, that they would understand, that they would get it, that they would be blessed. And verse 3 says that they kept it. And Pratt observed that this is one of the reasons that we shouldn't overcomplicate this letter. The first readers, they didn't have their own copy. They couldn't go home and study it. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't have charts. They didn't have graphs. They listened, and they understood what was being read. And we might ask today, naturally, well, why isn't it that easy for us? Why can't we just hear it and immediately understand it? Well, there are a few reasons for that. A couple of those are because we live in a different period of time, and we come at it from a different cultural perspective. You cannot fully put yourself into the first century mindset because you've never been there. You've never seen it. You've never lived it. And it's not that hard to see how this difficulty happens. Imagine taking an image or a symbol from our day and having John try to explain it in words to those who lived in the first century and the challenges that they would have in understanding. For instance, let's just give that a try, all right? Let's take this image right here, for instance, all right? Imagine John writing to those in the first century these words, and I turned and saw one who had the appearance of a man with a multitude of horns on his head, with numbers on each horn corresponding to those on the gridiron below, measuring a hundred units in length, plus ten more, and either end terminating with posts that reached to the sky. The face of the man was like the gold and pitch, and over his nostrils it instructed me to rock. And in front of the horns was a tribute, circular in shape, to one who will live one day in the hall. And at the apex, rising out of one of the horns, were thirteen stripes and fifty stars and a sea of blue that revealed another allegiance to another even greater kingdom, except on game day. And I turned and beheld another who had sworn allegiance elsewhere, and on his head was a crown of coagulated milk. All right, I think you get the idea, right? The description would be impossible for them to understand. But as impossible as it would be for them, you get it immediately. You don't have any trouble understanding it because you live in the context, in the culture that gives you the vantage point from which to interpret it. Similarly, you can also look at this image and you understand that immediately. Unfortunately, all too easily we recognize and understand and uh, can sort of feel what that is all about. But the point is that Revelation isn't a letter that can't be understood, but we do need to do a couple of things, several things, if we're going to rightly understand it. It's not that we can't understand what has, was happening in the first century, but we need to be intentional about some things if we're going to get there. And that brings us into the second reality, which is this, that revelation requires we always look to the context. 
And there are two contexts in particular that we're going to want to keep in mind all the way through this study. And the first of those is the historical context. The historical context. One of the first tasks in interpreting the Bible is to consider what the text meant to the original audience. It's not until you ask the question, all right, this was originally written to a church or a series of churches. What did it mean to them? It's only then that we can begin to make this bridge to start to understand, well, what does it mean for me? What's the application that I might take from it for myself? We need to start there. One principle of interpretation says, says that a text cannot mean what it never meant. So it can't mean one thing for people in the first century and mean something all completely different for us. We need to recognize it from where it started because it is God's Word and it stays true. So understanding what it meant in the first century to the first century church is going to help us understand it as the 21st century church. It's the same thing that would help us understand it as the 31st century church if the Lord should tarry that long. Nobody thought He'd tarry until the 21st century, but yet here we are. Historical context is crucial. Second piece of context we always need to look to is biblical context. A lot of times we talk about not pulling a verse out of its context so that we wouldn't make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Another way that biblical context is applied is that you can take a passage of Scripture and you can look to other passages of Scripture, the other things that the Bible says, and you can help, that can help you to interpret a passage that might be difficult to understand based on what something else says. In the case of the book of Revelation, we've got a wealth of things that we can go and look at. The book of Revelation has 404 verses, and it's been counted up many times that there are more than 500 allusions to other passages in the Bible, just in those 404 verses. Most of those are in the Old Testament. By percentage of verses, this is more than any other book in the Bible that it alludes to other places. And so it gives us a lot of things, a lot of places we can go that are going to help us to understand what it's saying there in the letter of Revelation because of what it alludes to in other places. And for the sake of for on the sake of those in the first century, they had a leg up on us in one sense because if anything was true of them, even if they weren't highly educated, even if they couldn't read, they knew the Old Testament and they knew it well. They knew it better than we know it. And because of that, when there were certain things that were said, certain things that were spoken, they heard something in the letter, it's like immediately they're making these connections back and forth, and it's helping to enlighten them in terms of what it means. So context is going to be very important in our study, and we are going to be using those two things constantly as we make our way along. Then it leads to another revelation reality, and that is that revelation expands the way we read the Bible. Now, if you're using the outline, you probably thought, hey, he's almost done. You didn't realize you got to turn that thing over. There's more there. All right, psych, got you. All right, so there's more that is coming. We're like only halfway there. We've talked about different genres of literature in the past as we've studied the scriptures. You've got things like poetry. You've got things like Proverbs. You've got things like narrative form. You've got epistles like letters. We were just talking about that a minute ago. But there's, this also, there's also this other classification that's referred to as apocalyptic literature apocalyptic literature, and it's different from all of those other forms and in big ways. It uses things like images and symbols and animals and, and numbers, and it's good to interpret those things literally wherever you can, but sometimes you can't. 
Sometimes you can't just take it literally because it doesn't make any sense to do so. And exactly what those images and symbols and animals and numbers mean and exactly when you should take it literally and you should, or you should take it symbolically and exactly when those prophecies are all going to come about form the divisions of different methods of interpretation with the book of Revelation. And this is where it can really get into some difficulty because there are, there are four major ways that people interpret the book of Revelation and another fifth one that oftentimes is thrown in that kind of blends those together. So I want to give you what each of these are. It's possible that you have never heard of any of these, uh, but yet you have a, a conviction about a particular position, and all of these influence the way that you are interpreting what's there. So let me just give them to you, and uh, if you're reading any commentaries along with this, every commentary you read will also give you this information. But let me tell you what these are. The first is called the preterist approach. It's called the preterist approach. This position says that everything in Revelation was fulfilled in the first few centuries after it was written. All right? A lot of people see, who are preterists, see that the cataclysm that you find at the end of the book of Revelation was actually fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. That that's what it was talking about. Now that can create a problem because most scholars believe that uh, the book of Revelation itself was written in the mid-90s. AD, and so that would be a little bit late for that to, so it's been expanded so that perhaps all the way up to 500 AD finds the fulfillment for the preterist interpretation. And the, one of the strengths of this position is that it definitely sees the first church, the first century church, as being spoken to in the book of Revelation. The downside is that we're not. Basically, it's saying that everything has been fulfilled before we ever got on the scene, and so there's not a lot of direct application for us. Second point of view is the historicist point of view, and this one says that there are things in the book of Revelation that have been fulfilled all the way through history, and uh, typically people try to point to certain things that identify, you know, what was going on then. This was especially popular um, right in the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Pope was identified, that must be the Antichrist, and those sorts of things, and it's, it's not quite as popular as it once was, but the historicist, historicist position um, has that to say. It's especially popular, like I said, in the Protestant Reformation, but always has had the trouble of needing to reinterpret events along the way as it was understood that, well, that must mean that, and then when it clearly didn't mean that anymore, now we need to sort of revamp that position. A third position is called the futurist position, futurist view. This says that the events of Revelation are going to happen in the future. It's kind of the opposite of the preterist view. Preterist view, everything happened in those first few centuries. The futurist view says everything is still future. Everything from from Revelation chapter 4 forward is all talking about something that's yet to happen down the road. A lot of people who hold this, there are different, there are different views, different, different flavors of futurism, if you will, but uh, that is out there. challenge for this is that uh, there's a, re- a relevance for us today or for those who are going to be living in those times, but there's no relevance for those who lived long ago because it doesn't speak to them. It's saying that it actually didn't have an application for the first century church when this, this letter was circulated around to them. Another challenge with the futurist point of view is a lot of people have been tempted to read Revelation with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. 
and saying this person must be the Antichrist and this person must be the beast and the, and the false prophet. And, and there's been a lot of that that's happened. And I don't need to try to convince you of that because you've seen that. You've heard that for yourself. There's no doubt. Fourth view is called the idealist view or interpretation or approach. This view says that the prophecies of the letter are primarily fulfilled symbolically throughout the history of the church, and it's representing the age-old conflict that existed between good and evil, and it's essentially saying that the book is just talking about that conflict. It's not necessarily trying to identify certain things or not even necessarily suggesting that the prophecies are going to be literally fulfilled, but rather it's an understanding that these are real things. These are real battles and conflicts that have gone on and continue to go on today. And then there's one more which is called the eclectic position, which blends some of these together. It takes a piece of this and it takes a piece of that and it puts it together. And there's some strengths with this position, but there's also the temptation or the danger that you might actually grab onto two things that you like that might be internally conflicting with one another and they can't actually be held simultaneously at the same time. So, Those are the different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've heard of those or not, but it's central to understand that there are these different approaches because if you believe one thing, it's going to influence, based on your point of view, how you look at something else as well along the way. Now, add to that some more confusion, which is there are actually three different millennial positions. And I do want to mention this. The millennium is, is a period of a thousand-year reign. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. That's right. It doesn't come up until Revelation chapter 20. It's way down the road. I know that for many of us, what the desire would be is, can we just get to the millennium? Will you just please talk about the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium, and then we'll be done with this, okay? And I understand that that might be a perspective that we would have, but The millennium doesn't even come up until chapter 20. And so we need to understand so many things. Now, it does have implications for how we see some other things. And so it's important and appropriate that we would throw it out there as we get started just to orient ourselves to this book. There are three different views. Now, the thousand-year period is considered when Christ will reign, peace will rule on the earth, Satan will be bound for these thousand years. Three different positions. The first of those is premillennialism, which says that Jesus is going to come back before the millennium. Postmillennialism says that Jesus is going to come back after the millennium, after those thousand years. And there are details to all of these that at some point we'll, we'll get into. And then there's another position called amillennialism, which suggests that the thousand years isn't literal, it's symbolic, and it is something that actually happens sort of simultaneously or along with the church age, which we are in right now. So those are three different points of view relative to the millennium as we think about that. Now, there's a significant amount of disagreement within the Christian church about which of these is right and which one should be held on to. And there's a lot of debate that goes back on back and forth. Some of it isn't all that pleasant that's happening. In fact, somebody once said that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. And it's sort of ironic in one way, but it's also sort of true when it comes right down to it. So, which one is right? Don't you just wish that I'd be able to stand up here and answer for you 
to answer that the church and theologians have not been able to come to a solid conclusion on for 2,000 years? Wouldn't you love me to be the one who, or barring that, wouldn't you love me just to stand up and say, here is the right view, and it's also your view, or what you kind of like, or what you've heard about that sort of aligns with what you've, what you've thought in the past? Wouldn't it be nice if we would just do that? And I could make those declarations. In fact, those declarations were made to me. Back when I was learning about these things, there, were, there was one pastor in particular, my pastor, who was very dogmatic on this topic. And he's like, there is only one view. And this is the view. There are other views that are out there. There's only one that is right, and this is the one. And this is the one that you have to hold to because there's no value, there is no truth at all in any of those others. And anybody who would tell you that there is, they're lying to you, they are deceiving you, and you need to throw away what they are telling you, and you really need to cut off fellowship with those people. There is only one way to look at this, and this is what it is, and this is what you need to believe. At the time I was young, I I didn't know any better. So it's like that's the position that I took on. And then I grew and got older and actually started to study the scriptures and and dig into things and come to learn them more and more for myself. And I'm reading passages one against another and it's like, you know what, That, that doesn't say what he said it said. All of these things aren't really lining up the way that they're supposed to. It's not all quite as black and white as it was presented to me. And so digging deeper and looking into what do the texts actually say proved very informative and also revealed some of the challenges that exist in that particular point of view that I had been taught. Our approach to this letter is not going to be, here's the right answer, your pastor told you, this is what you need to believe, so just go believe it and don't ask any questions. It's not going to be our approach. There's an arrogance in that, an arrogance that I was taught with, and I don't think that it's very helpful at all. Keep in mind that those people that hold some of those other positions, they're not all outrunning cults. In fact, these are people who you are going to be standing side by side with, many of them, in heaven, worshiping God, and one of the other of you is going to have to walk up to the other one and say, turns out you were right, and I was wrong. But here we both are, in heaven, worshiping God, side by side. People who hold all of these positions, you will find worshiping together. The positions do not alter a belief that mankind is sinful, that Jesus came into our world to die, to spare us from the penalty that we deserved, went to the cross, rose victoriously over the grave, ascended into heaven, and is coming back. It's a common position that is held across the board. Now, All of that is not to say, so it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It's important that we would understand what we believe. 
It's important that we would understand why we believe it, because the conclusions that you come to have implications. Implications of how you look at other pieces of the Bible. Implications for how you look at other parts of Revelation, the Scriptures. You should study to know what this book is about, so you'd be prepared for what is ahead. And we're going to address those sorts of issues as we make our way along. But we're going to approach it, as we should one another, with humility, with Christ-likeness. There's no reason to divide over these issues, regardless of what your position might happen to be relative to the one that somebody else holds. In our culture, we're losing the ability to disagree with someone in a way that we can still be friends and we can still have fellowship. The church should be on the forefront of moving that in a new direction, and this is a great opportunity for us to give that a try and learn that. I know that there are these things. I know those Those arguments are very interesting, and we love to debate in those things. But what my goal is, first and foremost, is to give you a love for this book. Because I do believe that at the end of the day, some of you are going to embrace it in a way that it's like, this is where, why why have I been missing this? There's so much here to strengthen, to encourage, to prepare us for that which is ahead. So one more resurrection reality to consider today, and that is that Revelation exalts God and His purposes. We're going to see that over and over again through this letter, just as we see it right here in these first eight verses. Let me show you some more of them. But first of all, we see it in how it reveals God's dominion. Reveals God's dominion. God's dominion is undeniable in this letter. Look at verse 4. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's twice in these few verses that we've got this declaration of God's sovereignty, of His eternality, of His rule over all, supreme reign. And it just keeps piling up. He talks about being the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and the last letters, as you know, of the Greek alphabet. It's saying that He was the beginning, and He is the end, and He is everything else in between as well. And twice it says He is and was and is to come, and we'll hear that more and more as this book goes on. Again, speaking to the fact of His reign being eternal. And who exactly is in view here? Is it all of who God is? And yes, it is that. But it's interesting the way that John delivers this to us here, because he's also choosing to not just say this is God in general, but he is starting to focus in a little bit on different people within the Godhead to help us to understand some of the attributes that are there so that we might come to see who they really are, to see their glory, to see their majesty, and lean into it, and allow that to shape us and to change us and to transform us and to encourage us and to strengthen us and to help us to recognize who God really is. So as he goes on here, if you look back at verse 4, right at the beginning of the verse, It talks about grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that referring to? Well, that is referring ultimately again to God the Father specifically. Yes, it's all of the Godhead in one sense, but it's also speaking to the nature of who God the Father is. As it goes on, 
We get down to verse 5, which is down here. It says it's from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, speaking of resurrection, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is Lord of all and will always be Lord of all. But we've got something else that is sandwiched right in between God the Father and God who is Jesus, his son. Sandwiched right in between. What does it say here? And it's from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits who are before his throne throne. What in the world is that talking about? Well, this is as good a place as any to identify the fact that there are many, many different sevens in the book of Revelation. Depending on whose count you go by, there's somewhere between probably 50 and 60 different times. It refers to seven this or seven that. And here we have this seven spirits who are before the throne. It's important for us to understand that when the scriptures talk about seven, it doesn't always necessarily mean just exactly seven. Seven is a number in the scriptures of perfection. It's a number of completion. And so if we take and we apply this idea of keeping everything in its context, and we look at the biblical context, what's going on here, we see these seven spirits. Well, some people say, well, those must be seven angels, for one for each of the churches. But if you look in context of the book of Revelation, you know that actually spirit is never used in reference to an angel. So it can't be that. And then you also, keeping it in context, you look right before it, it's talking about God the Father. Right after it, it's talking about God the Son. Well, this must be talking about, and there's every reason to conclude that this is God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the divine trinity. Now, no he, no, he is not seven different spirits. He is one spirit, but remember, it is speaking to this idea of perfection and completion. And indeed, the spirit is the perfect Holy Spirit. There is no doubt about that. I was talking to Kevin Dumpy from our congregation last week, and he said to me that I should point out that when Jesus came to the earth the first time in the first advent that we, cel- we just celebrated at Christmas, he comes in his earthly human nature. But all the rest of the way through the book of Revelation, what we see is this is one who is exalted and lifted up and glorified and magnified over and over and over again. And he's right. I should tell you that. In fact, I just did. There you go. Revelation also exalts God and his purposes in that it anticipates Jesus' return. This is clearly a major theme and a beautiful truth in the book of Revelation, and John doesn't want us to miss it at all, and he gets right to it. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What a glorious truth that Jesus is coming again. Jesus said no one knows that hour or the day that that is going to happen or when things are going to happen relative to other end times events. But all of that depends, what your conclusion on that is going to depend on which of those points of view that you take based of those that I was sharing with you just a little bit ago. But don't let the details steal from you the joy and excitement of just what's being said here. This is part of my fear in this, and it's part of what I'm afraid has happened in many places. We read, okay, well, Jesus is coming on the clouds And all of a sudden it's like, well, what does that mean? And where does that fit on the chart? And is that before the millennium? What about in relationship to the tribulation? When does it happen? When is he coming in relation to that? And we get into all these arguments and debates, even in our own mind. And that's where we spend our energy instead of on the fact, thinking about the fact, praising the fact that Jesus is coming back. 
Or the same sort of thing happens. We read, it says that every eye will see him. And we put our mental energy to, how in the world can that happen? Because there are people all over the world. And if he just appears, how is everybody going to be able to see him? It's a round globe we were on. And we lose sight of the fact that what it's telling us is that Jesus is coming back. But we miss that because we get so focused on these other things. And that's a problem that we need to figure out and we need to overcome. There's no doubt about that. Truth of the matter is, there are many things that we can get worked up about that are all secondary to the fact that what the book of Revelation tells us is that we have a Lord and that we have a Savior who, yes, those things might be interesting to look at, they might be interesting and even important and valuable to contemplate, but they should be secondary after we've exhausted the opportunity to give praise and honor and glory and blessing and power and strength and wisdom to God who is, to Jesus Christ who is coming again. We need to be certain that we keep our attention where it needs to be. Revelation is a letter filled with worship to God. We're going to see that over and over again. And I'm just looking forward to our opportunity to worship ourselves, not worship ourselves, worship God ourselves. Just as we have time to be together and to sing, and yes, it's going to pale in comparison to what it will be one day but to be mindful of the fact that this is what we're going to be spending parts of eternity doing. Important that we would keep that first and foremost. I can promise you that when Jesus returns in the clouds, that you're not going to care if your chart was right. You're going to care if your heart was right. And Revelation gives us the opportunity and the motivation to dig in and recognize and go deep and to have our hearts transformed. That's what I believe that this can and will do for us. Revelation also, one more thing here quickly. It brings blessings. The last thing here, it brings blessings. Earlier we read in verse 3 that it says that Revelation is a prophecy, and it is, but that's not all that verse 3 said. Look again at it. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is a book of blessings. Here it says it comes to the one who reads and hears and keeps what is here, and that's true. But this isn't the only blessing or beatitude that we find in the book of Revelation. Anybody want to take a stab at how many different blessings it speaks to in the book of Revelation? Any guesses? Guess seven. Seven, yes. That's right. It's seven. And what have we already learned about seven? Seven is a number of perfection and of completion. So is it there are only seven blessings that you can find in the book of Revelation? I don't think so. There's much more. It's part of why we've titled, subtitled this series, Revelation, The Blessing and the Promise, is because there's so much here. So let me just give you one blessing as we close. One of the overarching blessings of this book is hope. As John writes this book to the people there in these churches in Revelation, 
There were people in all sorts of circumstances. There were people who were compromising with the world and they were giving in and they were, they were suffering because of the fact that they were walking away from God. There were people who were experiencing literal persecution because of their faith in Christ. There are people here who have had to pick up and move from their homes and be exiled because of the persecution that was coming because of their belief in Jesus. There was wickedness that seemed to be triumphing all around them, and they're wondering, where is God? And John writes this to pull back the curtain and say, here's God. God is on the throne. Not God one day will be on the throne. God is today on the throne, and He is in control. He says, take heart. That's a word that you might need today as well. You might need to be reminded in the, mass, in the midst of the struggles and the challenges and the difficulties and the pains and the problems and the diagnoses that you've been receiving that have been going on in your life that God is in control. And here we have a beautiful picture and we'll see it in weeks to come of Him on the throne and the worship that is going on around and His beautiful care for His people and for His world. And God is on the throne. That's true today, not just in the future. And you can find yourself the blessing of hope and encouragement and strength for where you are. It's not just some book that talks about something way down the road. It's something that speaks to where we live today. And I'm excited about digging into this as we behold and as we worship the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing letter. Thank you for revealing it to John so that we might have our own glimpse to understand what it's about. Thank you that it is not just about arguments and it's not just about end times positions but that this is something that was written to bring encouragement, to provide strength, and to meet believers in the midst of the challenges that they were going through. And just as it was relevant for them in the midst of their struggle, it is relevant for, our, for us in the midst of ours. So Lord, we pray that as you reveal yourself through these words, as we study them together, that we wouldn't just see a revelation of some content but that we'd see the revelation of Jesus Christ alive and reigning and leading and guiding and providing in the midst of where we are and where we're going. Lord, thank you for this, these beautiful words. We just ask that you might bring clarity to our minds and inspiration to worship you as you are and always will be, we pray, in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.